Hey everybody, and welcome to this brand new podcast called In Progress. My name is Lindsay, and each episode I will sit down with somebody to talk about stories of life, faith, discovery, all the things of their own journeys that are still in progress. I work for a campus ministry called Sojourn, where we believe that God has a dream for each of our lives. Through each of these conversations, I hope to see a little glimpse of what those dreams are for the people around me. On this very first episode, I'm talking with the executive director of Sojourn, Tim Hawkins. I met Tim shortly after he moved to Boston to start Sojourn when I was still in college, and I've had the pleasure of working with him for the past seven years. So let's jump right into Tim's journey in progress. All right, so welcome. Today we have Tim Hawkins with us. So thanks for, I was just going to say thanks for joining me, but we're at your house. So thanks thanks, for coming here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Tim, do you want to just start with who you are and uh, why you're here in your house recording a podcast? Yeah, why you would ask me to to record a podcast. Uh, Well, to to sort of key into that part of the story, we're here if we sort of rewind because in 2005, uh, my family uh, moved here from uh, Missouri to start a college ministry called Sojourn Collegiate Ministry. And uh, we had no idea where that journey would take us and certainly not that we'd be sitting here at this table uh, some 14 years later, which just seems unbelievable to me now that it's been 14 years. What made you go like, not only am I going to move to Boston, but I'm going to start a ministry in Boston? I'd been through a pretty uh, significant spiritual journey in my life as a pastor. In particular, I really had came to a point that the gospel that I had come to know or had been taught, I no longer believed in. Mm. And I didn't know what to do with that, really. Particularly when you, when your life and your career and your reputation, your stability, everything is sort of wrapped around uh, owning and being good at this one thing to no longer believe in it the way you used to really created a a bit of a crisis for me. So I went through about a two year period where I had to internally wrestle with that. I'd say it's one of the, one of the biggest lessons I I tell people now, uh, I I watch so many young pastors. This is a total side note, by the way, is that right? (laughs) Um, I watch so, so many young people who really go through a similar thing where they um, want to distance themselves from a faith that they once had, but don't have a place to land yet. And they, they set aside what they had before they ever have a place to land. And consequently, they, they really find themselves in no man's land spiritually and with no good place to turn, no good place to really anchor themselves to. And so many of them that I've, I've talked to end up landing nowhere and having a difficult time really working in ministry. We lose so many great people because of that who I think are, are built for ministry and are wired for ministry. I think one of the most important things you can do is before you let go of what had worked well for you at one time, you really need a place to land before you can let go of one so that you can stand firmly on the other. So that was one thing that uh, I was able to do and I didn't have to work it out in public and let bring everybody on this journey with me. Right. Fortunately, I was able to do that in the background. But once I landed in a different place, I knew that the work I was currently doing in Missouri, I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do any longer. Um, so there's a combination of this dream of making a difference in an influential place, uh, but also a place that I felt like I was aligning with in terms of 
where my spiritual journey had taken me, what I'd let go of and what I, what I was grabbing hold of. So that's really, that's really the convergence of those two things. So what does it look like to be a pastor in a crisis of faith? Mm. Like, like who do you turn to with your doubts and your questions, or do you just bottle it all up inside mm. and figure it out? Because you're, as a pastor, you're kind of supposed to be the person that people go to mm. who are in faith crises. Yeah, it's funny. When I look back on the very first ministry I had uh, for seven years, I was at a small church and uh, I, I just did, I did tons of funerals. And I think there was a combination of, I, I felt like I did know everything uh, as, as a lot of us are when we're, as do when we're young. Yeah. Uh, I still do know everything. <laughs> that's right. It's, well, except for you. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I actually you don't go do through know that. everything. Yeah. Um, and and I think, but then life experience really challenges so many of those, uh, so many of those foundational uh, beliefs. But it's a great question about who do you who do you unpack that with? Because you certainly can't unpack those doubts with the people that you're you're pastoring. I do think it's one of the one of the dangers of doing that with a community that you steward. And I do think that being a pastor is a steward of relationships, and and you're you're investing in people. And I think you want to guard that. And I don't think it's fair to the people that you are, uh, that have been entrusted to you to unpack your journey uh, with them. I, there's plenty of arguments can be made the other way, I'm sure. But but I think what I've seen is that it's a challenge to be able to do that. And so the, there really did come down to, uh, I really, I had remote pastors mm. uh, through uh, books, people like um, Alan Hirsch, for example were really critical and influential at a, a crucial time for me. Uh, people like Brian McLaren was really helpful in, in some of the key questions that I had. Rob Bell, for example, uh, it, it, same thing. And, and these people were so accessible at the time and uh, could be remote conversation partners. And then I think you're, you, you have to find one or two trusted people close to you that you can start to unpack that with and find out if you're crazy or not. So the people who know you well need to know if you're crazy. That, that's an important yeah. part of it too. And were, were you crazy? Uh, some, there was, there were some crazy parts and, uh, that's, that's where you do need that, that check locally and somebody to push back on, on some of the things that you're thinking about. So I do think it's, it's a both and, but yeah, that was, that was good. And as I look back, it was so crucial though, to have both like the remote conversation partners and the local people. Because I was able to then incorporate what was beneficial. And really for me, and this is just goes back to get another another uh, trail we could chase. But I mean, I let go of every assumption that I had. I let go of everything about my faith. And there was really only one thing that, that I anchored to, which is uh, Paul saying that if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is is really kind of worthless, that it's really bullshit. If, if that didn't happen, if the resurrection, physical resurrection of Jesus isn't the hallmark of the story, then the rest of it doesn't really matter. And that really resonated with me from a historical point of view. And that was my academic background. And so from a historical critical point of view, there there are moments in history that shape and change things. And the way we look at the world and the way we interact with the world. And that to me was the thing that the world changed. The world absolutely changed after Jesus' death Mm -hmm. and resurrection. Lots of people can give lots of arguments as to why that's the case. But but I do think there's a good argument to be made that these people really believe that 
that something happened that had never happened before. And so I, I let go of every other assumption about faith except for that one and rebuilt everything from there. So you're saying you don't necessarily think it's fair to work out your doubts and, and thoughts in front of the community that you're shepherding. So what do you do that? Do you pretend like everything's okay? Like, how do you have those interactions and conversations with them while you're wrestling through these things while also not bringing them maybe as deep into the that wrestling? Mm. So sometimes I hear people say things about like, well, it's just not authentic. Like, I need mm-hmm. to be authentic. Right. And, you know, sometimes... You can be authentic in just the very fact that you are uh, not self-disclosing. So the fact that you equate authenticity with total and utter transparency, I don't think are are equal necessarily. I do think that authenticity can be, I have a responsibility to shepherd and to lead a community of people. And I will do so to the best of my ability to what I know currently to be true. So maybe it's recognizing where that person's needs are and what conversations they're ready for. And so maybe if they're ready for the wrestling that you're involved in, you can bring them in there. Yes. And if they're not, then... I agree with that totally and completely. And and my experience was my community was not... And there there were certainly people that I could have those conversations with as an introduction to... Mm -hmm. um, Maybe drop some seeds or like ask... Exactly. Specific yeah. Specific questions or whatever. Right. Right. But, but you know, in a traditional church or college ministry, particularly in the Midwest, eighty percent of the people are perfectly okay where they are. Right. And they're uh, opening up those conversations is not beneficial or helpful. Yeah. And and I think it's irresponsible as a pastor who's given that charge mm-hmm. to to create those kinds of of doubts when people aren't aren't already there. I think that's not reading the community that you're shepherding. And so that's why I would say that that's the case. How do you then respond to somebody who like isn't necessarily ready for the wrestling or maybe as deep of the wrestling as maybe you're going through, but is perfectly content with the status quo where they're at? Like, cause there's, there's a part of me that when I see somebody like mm-hmm. just like, nope, I'm maintaining, I'm great. Like, I want to shake that up. I want to like throw things at them and be like, yeah, but what about this? So like, how do you find that balance between shaking up the status quo while at the same time, not breaking down the house? I think that's a great, a great reflection. You know, as, as I look back, once I was ready and had a, a confident sense of my newfound understanding of faith and what it meant to follow Jesus, where I could confidently lead people down that road, then I felt very comfortable and confident with prodding Mm -hmm. uh, because I, I could, I could gently start to tug that rug out from underneath them a little bit mm-hmm. and at the same time uh, help them find another place to stand without just knocking them off their feet and giving them no place to land. Mm. And I think that really was the key is until until I could could give them someplace else to land. And and I again this is where works by folks like Leslie Newbigin were so crucial to me uh, in his book Proper Confidence that uh, certainty is never what we're looking for and I think as a young pastor certainty just seemed like a necessity of faith and particularly as a pastor but the fact that really what we're looking for is a is a, a proper confidence in our faith it was a game changer for me and so there I, I needed to give place uh, give people a. a a proper confidence of where they could stand once if I was going to tug at all. And then you can tell whether people are going to fall over and implode 
or whether they are actually looking. Because if they're looking for a new place to stand, they're quick to engage yeah. and, and, and work with what you're having in conversation. But if they're not, and and you can tell, then then it's those important. defenses start to come up. Exactly, minute, yeah. exactly, yeah. That, that's important. So I think you know to answer your question, I think as a pastor, what was important from an authenticity uh, perspective is I needed to be able uh, to authentically help them land someplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, is what I felt like that was my responsibility. So do you feel like when you were in the midst of this wrestling, I guess rediscovering your faith, do you feel like you had? a new place to stand or do you feel like the rug had just been completely pulled out and now you were kind of flailing? Uh, I think it was gradual and I can't say, I, I, I can look back and say I could see uh, the potential and I knew that it was possible that I was going to go into free, like spiritual free fall. Mm. And that just did not seem like a, a good, a good path uh, to follow. So I would say that a big part of my pastoral work was in in those days whereas now i would say a big part of my pastoral work is engaging people in conversation and reframing the way they see and understand jesus a big part of my my pastoral work then was doing that for me Mm. so i you know i I wasn't spending all my time out and engaging these conversations with people i was spending a lot of my time reading yeah. And working through these things and so writing were, about them. You were kind of your own guinea pig. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the reasons I gave so much of ministry away during that time period. Because uh, I knew they were comfortable and confident with where they were. Mm. And it was important that that leadership be exhibited. But that couldn't come from me. So if what the kind of one or two anchor points that you had through this process was, you know, Jesus rose from the dead and that God has a dream for your life. Would you say those are still like pretty much the two anchor points or would you say that there is more to that now? There's a little bit more to that, but that those two things hold it together. Mm-hmm. So I would say I've added a few things. I, I really, the work of the Holy Spirit means so much more to me mm-hmm. uh, now than it ever has. I really believe that when, you know, the, when Jesus is giving sort of his foundational talks um, at the end of his life to his disciples about when I go, here's, here's what's going to happen. And that the promise that the Holy Spirit is going to be a comforter, mm-hmm. that the Holy Spirit is going to lead us to truth, and that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness. When I really came to fully understand those things, I realized that if the Holy Spirit leads people to truth, comforts, leads people, convicts the world of sin and righteousness, that means those things are not my responsibility. Mm, and yeah. that that was tremendously freeing yeah. as a pastor to say, really, what I get to do is tell people about this good news of the resurrection of Jesus and God's dream for the world. And and to, to quote, you know, one of the parables that, that Jesus says about a treasure hidden in a field that, you know, man goes and sells everything he has so he can buy the field and have the treasure that I really began to see my role and responsibility as an evangelist and a pastor is simply holding up a big sign that says, dig here because there's buried treasure. And to help people know where to dig for this buried treasure when they're looking and when they when they need it. Now, some people don't know that they need it and some people don't know that they're that they're still looking. And, and I think when you see a sign, though, and you see a lot of people in line at a new restaurant, because this is the place to be, uh, that, that's sort of yeah. the vision in my head about 
when people begin to understand that this is the place where you dig for treasure uh, and that there's joy, there's good news to be found there, uh, that that's not something you have to convince people of. That's something you you have an opportunity to give to people. So that that idea of how the Holy Spirit works and the fruit of the Spirit in our life, that really became, I would say, just maybe a third anchor to my faith as time has gone on. So when you were letting go of all this, these other aspects of your faith that you had held tightly to through this process, what was one of the hardest things for you to let go? Wow. Um, I think the biggest thing is what salvation means. I mean, that was really the, the biggest thing is trying to talk to people about that Jesus died as an atonement for your sin. Like just those words it might as well have been a foreign language that I'd never heard before. And trying to tell them to people who didn't have any context for those words really was, I mean, it's funny, my wife and I a couple of years ago uh, had a chance to to visit France for our 25th wedding anniversary. And we were in a community that it's basically like going to the countryside and and nobody speaks very much English. And I I learned just a few words and I'll never forget asking for the check at one restaurant and her eyes lit up like she knew what I was saying for the first time and brought me the check. It was like, oh, we now understand each other. for the rest of the time, it's just like we're pointing at things and we, we, there's just no way to really get at what you what you really want to communicate. And that's kind of the way I felt about, about this idea that uh, when I was talking about, you know, Jesus died to save you from your sins as an atoning sacrifice, like I might as well have been speaking French in Warrensburg, Missouri, which is where I was. There was just no, no communication was really happening. Yeah. It actually reminds me of a story. I had a very similar experience mm. in a French countryside. <laughs> um, my sister and I were trying to book a hotel and we walk into this, it was a bar on the first floor, hotel on the second floor. There's like five old French guys. We had this little translation book. And so within an hour of pointing through the book, writing down words, like all eight of us in the bar figure out we need a room. I have a room. You know, it's like an hour to get <laughs> right, that far. Right. We come back after lunch and there's another couple in there that also doesn't speak French. And the guy calls me over. He's like, you got this. In that moment, I was like, he thinks I know what he's saying because I have a French book. Yes. But I don't know what he's saying. And I think when faith gets stuck in this language that no longer communicates to the world around us. It's our responsibility as, as pastors, as evangelists to, to interpret it. And I'm convinced that, that God is at work through the Holy Spirit in all of that. And really I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm doing my best to translate it, Yeah, you know, and, and it's not even that I don't believe in it anymore. It's that the language just doesn't make sense. And so it's the translation part that I think is really beautiful work. And and my wife is amazing about talking about, you know, part of the nature of God in Genesis is that, is that God is a God of language. God is the God Mm -hmm. of speech and translating and understanding and that we've been given this gift of speech and communication is to me such a big part of the stewardship of, of, you know, what we come to know is good news. Yeah. And ultimately, I would say that's kind of the foundation for all of it is it's not so much I, I can look back on and say, I think that there was there, there are important all of those um, metaphors, understandings about what salvation is and what the gospel is have been important for their time and their place. And then there's a time to, to translate yeah. uh, into a new time and a new place. Yeah. So I, that was key. Well, yeah. And that, that's such an interesting 
uh, way to think about it too, because the way you would talk about church and God and Jesus in small town Missouri is not the way that you talk about it in Boston. And not just because they're different cities, but like the experience of the people in those places is so different. And the metaphors that you would use and the like you said, the language that we use, I'm not going to get the same references that you're going to get and vice versa. And so being able to translate those references and those metaphors into language that people can actually hear is important. And people hold on to language like idols. And so the language itself becomes a barrier to communication. And so you think about Paul's speech to the Areopagus when he goes and he begins by saying, you know, you, you already have an idol here that is inscribed to an unknown God. Let me tell you about this God who is the creator of the universe. Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't communicate about the gospel in the same way he does when he's speaking with the Jewish community. And so it's just, it's intuitive that you do change how you speak in different contexts. But for some reason in the church, it feels like immediate heresy you know right. if you change right there's a particular word so mm-hmm. you're talking about inerrancy of scripture whenever that word came into right. you know the the evangelical you know conservative evangelical world now suddenly everything is vetted through this one word and what right. that one word means and that just seems uh very very narrow to me that's interesting too because that measure constantly changes like right you know it used to be that the Bible couldn't even be in English or couldn't be in people's homes or could not be the King James version. Like, right. Like all these different rules that this is what makes it correct. I forget who originally said this or maybe nobody did. I've just heard it so many times. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was me. Maybe I'm just brilliant. Um, and I'm quoting myself, but just this idea that I don't believe in God because the Bible is true. I believe the Bible is true because I believe in God. And, and when we put all these, restrictions on the way we talk about scripture or God or the way we read it or the way we interact with it. Like really what we're doing is believing in the Bible, not in God. I agree. Um, I'll just stop there. Okay. <laughs> I almost went down another trail, but I'll leave it there. So you talked about this idea that currently one of the freeing parts about this process for you has been recognizing that this work is the work of God is the work of the spirit and it's not on your shoulders. Have there been other things that you've discovered along the way that have, whether or not they've been freeing or rejuvenating or whatever, but have been good in that way? Yeah, let me say this. When, when When I found a place to stand with my faith, it was just total joy that I love what I do. Regardless of my paid job, I, I believe in this message of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And in, in communicating in a way that's meaningful. And so one of the greatest joys that I have is the freedom to communicate it in ways that are meaningful to people. Mm-hmm. And uh, this summer has been really, um, I'll converge a couple of things here. One is to say that I really do find the greatest joy in uh, translating God's goodness in context in a way that, that people who are looking for God can see God more clearly. Mm. Uh, that's the greatest joy I have. I'm, I'm grateful for the people that, that allow me to do that, uh, not only in their lives, but the people who partner with us to, lo- to allow me to do that as a full-time job, mm. that I get to be on the lookout for that and, and do that 
And I would say that, you know, part of that is we're always, based upon our life experiences and our relationships, we're always reinterpreting what it is that we understand. And uh, one of the things that I've carried with me, and and this really is, I would say, if, if I've had another similar reawakening in my faith journey, it's been the summer through, uh, I, I was asked to write, contribute a chapter to a book, and it's a strange assignment, but for Christian people who have, or are familiar with uh, what is typically known in the Christian world as the Great Commission, mm-hmm. where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and I'll always be with you to the end of the age. And and for many of us like that, I don't know if I got it word for word, but I think it's pretty close. Uh, we, we know this great commission, but I was asked to, to write on three words from the previous two verses of that, which I will summarize because I don't have memorized. You'll, you'll summarize the three words? Yeah, I'll, I'll summarize those three <laughs> words. But the summary of the two verses is that the apostles uh, go to the mountain to meet Jesus after his resurrection. And uh, Matthew says that the 11 go, which are the apostles, so these are like the superstars of faith mm-hmm. at the time. The all-star team. The all-star team. And uh, they get to the mountain and Matthew says that they worshiped. And then he says, he has these three words and some doubted. And I, I visually, it just makes me sort of laugh because I, I can imagine sort of Matthew, you know, he knows about Thomas's doubt. And so he's, you know, before the world of uh, social media and Instagram, just sort of, you know, Matthew throwing shade at Thomas, I think, you know, across the room that, uh, you know, we were there to worship with Thomas. But Thomas, Thomas Thomas doubted. But the reality is Peter had his doubts and Philip had his doubts. And we we have a number of, uh, you know, stories written both in the other, in in John and Mark and Luke of doubts that the, that the apostles had. And um, this summer, so that phrase was what I was asked to write about and some doubted. It was appropriate because I feel like it's been my whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, from a historical point of view, you you look at the world through a historical critical lens. So everything is in suspicion. I'm definitely sort of you know the uh, through the the mindset of uh, maybe the sort of post Christian world of that everything is sort of held in suspicion, and I, I view everything that way. What are facts? What are the sources? Where do they come from? And uh, everybody's got a point of view. So, you know, I definitely have that, that, def- that postmodern bend to my thinking of what can you trust. So, was re- so doubt has always been a constant companion with me. And the question I've always wrestled with as a Christian and as a pastor is how much doubt is okay. Mm. And I, I've heard a lot of messages on it's okay to doubt, it's okay to doubt, it's okay to doubt, but I don't know how much doubt is all right. You know, is is there a is there a point where Oh, I'm sorry, you're doubting too much, you're gonna have to leave. Exactly. That you can't go to the mountain right. in, in that, you're in that not situation. Doubting quite enough. We're gonna need you to ask some more questions. Exactly, exactly. So that was a really great exercise this summer. And there there are two the two other sort of connected uh things that happen and, and I'll I'll come back around to I feel like what what I've been learning about that or sort of this new awakening. Uh, one of which is the only other time that that word doubt is used by Matthew is in a story about Peter. And this particular story is when, so Jesus has finished feeding the 5,000. Uh, he feeds a bunch of people with 
a couple of fish and some loaves of bread. And uh, the, he tells the disciples to get in a boat and go to the other side. He'll meet them there. He goes onto the mountain to pray and he, you know, becomes late. He, he goes to, to, he walks on the water towards the boat because they're out at quite a distance. They think it might be a ghost. Jesus says, no, it's me. Peter says, well, can I come to you? So Peter jumps out of the boat and begins to walk on the water. And there's a point where he sinks mm -hmm. and uh, he cries out to Jesus to help him. Uh, Jesus really asks him, why did you doubt? Yeah. In the context, you see that there's, you know, there's wind and waves and uh, it, it just to me is so... It's almost a ridiculous question, right? Like, what are you talking about? Exactly. I'm walking on water and you're asking me why I'm surprised that I'm walking on water? Of course I'm doubting. <laughs> of course this isn't right. Yeah. There's a bit of a chastisement about, you know, you have a little faith. Mm -hmm. I think Peter sometimes can be used in that way. That Peter had this kind of boldness and then he also had this, you know, other side of him that was kind of impetuous, you know. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so I do think that there's a, a bit of that, but I was struck by something else Jesus said in Matthew 17, when a man brings his son to be healed to the apostles and they can't heal the son. The, the father brings the son to Jesus and Jesus talks about Jesus is exhausted by now by the lack of faith in the world. And he talks about that, wondering how long am I going to have to endure this? Mm -hmm. Then he heals the son. And the apostles come to him and they, they say, how come we couldn't do it? And he says, and this is where he kind of talks about their lack of faith. And then he tells them, if you, if you could just only understand, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell this mountain to jump into the sea. Yeah. This mountain would jump into the sea. And then he says, nothing, nothing would be impossible for you. And, and I, I've always, I think, looked at that as a... Uh, maybe this is just how I'm wired in terms of my negativity, right? Like... Uh, <laughs> Well, I don't have that much faith. And mm -hmm. so we, we're all sort of in that boat. But this summer in putting these things together, it's made me realize that the, only the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. It doesn't take much faith at all yeah. to go to the mountain and worship. Almost zero. Like nothing. <laughs> and, and suddenly this weight I've carried around my whole life about my doubts and whether or not this is real, I've just felt lifted from me. Because yeah. it's like, I, I suddenly see this verse in, in the complete reverse, which is, no, you, all you need is enough faith to cry out to God. Because that's all the faith Peter had in the water, was just enough faith to, in, in our worst moments, in our worst situation, in our most difficult crisis. And that's sort of what I've wrestled with this summer is, I've had three people very close to me in the last month die. Mm. And, and these wrestlings of like this conflict yeah. of God's goodness, really at the end of the day. The story of Peter getting out of the boat, like I've always sat with that story and been like, Peter always gets this bad rap about doubting, but he was the only one who got out of the boat. All the other disciples didn't even have the trust to get out of the boat. Mm -hmm. They all stayed in. Yeah, Peter sunk eventually, but he also walked on water for a little bit. And, you know, the only other person that gets to say that is Jesus. And yeah, Peter doubted, but he also stepped out. And, and I think what that means is we all live our life with a certain amount of faith. Yeah. Faith that what we do matters. Faith that your work matters. Mm -hmm. Faith that the person you love matters. Faith that community matters. Faith that justice matters. Faith that racial reconciliation matters. 
uh, faith that goodness matters. Mm -hmm. Like we all live our life with some, and I would say it's less than a mustard seed of faith, and yeah. that's all it takes. And and I think that's what was so demonstrated to me in, the, in that passage. And I think faith is alive in the world in a much more robust, beautiful way. Yeah. And I think helping people understand and see that the resurrection of Jesus makes that possible, that it didn't end with injustice being served by Jesus dying on the cross. It didn't end with a good man being killed at the hands of political and religious oppression, but that it ends with resurrection and hope, that the struggles, the fight that we believe in and that we put our faith in, that we that something exists in the world to give us hope and faith that we can work to those ends and it's worth it mm. because the death of Jesus wasn't the end, but the resurrection was. And, and that's how all of that sort of begins to fit together for me. I, I'm sure there'll be other awakenings in my life in, in years to come, but from a faith journey, this felt like a big one to, uh, to let go of something like doubts in particular that I just carried around like a weight, like I wasn't good enough. Mm. I'm not a good enough Christian. I'm not a good enough pastor. I'm not a good enough dad or a good enough husband to, to have this sort of very certain confident faith uh, that I think might, uh, this might even seem heretical. Like, I just wonder if that sometimes is just not real for most people. And I think the idea that it just takes enough faith has been really freeing for me. What advice would you give to somebody who's in the midst of the wrestle? right now so I, I would say it depends on on the wrestling what they're what they're wrestling with I just I, I guess I want to speak specifically and this this feels like I'm narrowing the audience very very quickly I think in the wrestling we we can easily see ourselves as maybe not gifted in terms of faith or spirituality, particularly when it comes to being a Christian, I, I think this this aspect that in the midst of your your struggle, you have a gift that is being invested somehow in the world, and you already are operating in faith in some way that it matters in what you do. It's important to steward that part of what you have, so steward it well. And so many young people that I know are not going into ministry. So again, narrowing the audience, the opportunity to do ministry is just such a privilege and such an honor. The wrestling, the difficulty, the struggle, the opportunity to communicate, to translate faith in the world around us. Um, I, I, I just can't imagine doing anything else with my life. I think there are more people called to that work uh, professionally than are doing it. And I think we lose a lot of people because of their uncertainty. Mm. And so I think the biggest thing I would say is uh, don't let your uncertainty keep you from really using your gift and what God has given you. That that to me is, that's one side. I feel like that's a very narrow audience. And I, and I think on the other side, in terms of people wrestling, I think God's umbrella of inclusion when it comes to grace, when it comes to people living into God's dream for the world is, is a pretty big umbrella. And I wonder if people, if people had a different language to communicate it, if they would identify themselves more directly with God's dream for the world. But when it's when that language is used to marginalize, when that language is used to 
create boundaries, when that language is used to keep people out, uh, when it's used to, to build gates uh, or fences, I should say, to build fences, then, then I think it's easy for us to not, as Christians, I think it's easy for us to not only not communicate good news, but actually to do just the opposite, which is to tell people that you're not actually included. Mm. Yeah. And I, I just think the gospel is much, much bigger and greater than that. So I think in terms of what, what do you do with the wrestling? Well, you know, you need to, to open up uh, and uh, allow God to do some work yeah. uh, in you. Find two or three good conversation partners, but steward what's before you well um, in the process. I think that's important. Well, as we wrap up, first of all, is there anything that you haven't said yet that you're like, this is gold. I got to say this. Now's my chance. I don't have any of that, but I will say <laughs> that. Ever. <laughs> no, but I will say that one of the things that, that uh, this summer in connection with um, doubt is the relationship between worship and doubt. Mm. And we haven't talked about worship at all, but that's the other piece of doubt that um, has really meant something to me this summer that the apostles, when they were at the mountain, they worshiped and some doubted. Um, and then also in the only other place that word doubt is, is used in Matthew, again, in reference to Peter, after Peter gets back on the boat and so they're all on the boat, they all worshiped. I guess the idea, I've always aligned my thinking about worship. I think I've always thought about worship in conjunction with the medium of worship. So sacrifices of the Old Testament or uh, singing, you mm-hmm. know, in churches today or the Sunday morning. Yep. So worship has always uh, been something to do with the medium. But when you read the totality of scripture, and this is what I've, I've thought a lot about this summer, there, there's sort of a general definition that has emerged for me, which is that worship at its core is ascribing greatness to God and my dependence upon God. Mm. Now, there are mediums that help me enter into that. And sometimes that's being out in nature. And sometimes that's being with people in community. Sometimes that's singing. But the medium is not worship itself. Worship is my heart, my soul, my mind, ascribing greatness to God and my dependence upon God. That's worship at the end of the day. And I can bring my doubts with me. And I think that's been the biggest thing. It's not just that it's okay to doubt. It's that not only can I doubt, but I can worship at the same time and oftentimes worship. So I've always thought about this way. I've always thought that doubts need to be answered, right? Yeah. So I have a list of doubts Yeah. and somehow I'm gonna, I need to wrestle with them until I have sufficient answers for that. Yeah. But I don't, I've I've come to, I guess maybe I feel like I've lived enough life now to know that I'm not gonna have answers to all my doubts. Mm -hmm. What has been an effective solution to my doubts has been worship. I'll end with this story. Uh, a few years ago, I was on a mission trip and uh, it was one of those days that all of our, our people wanted to go to, to Willow Creek. Which is? Uh, it's a large mega church in Chicago. Okay. And uh, we get there and I, I just, I've had a bad day, I've had a bad week, and the last place I really wanna be is at this, at this at big this mega, mega church. church. Yeah. Exactly, right. <laughs> so I leave everybody. Like I go up to the balcony by myself to try to sit where there is nobody. And uh, the the band on stage starts going through this chorus, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, the yep. name of the Lord shall be praised. They do it like five times, six times. And I find my whole body just becoming angry, really. Can we just be done now? 
can we move on? So we just go and we go. And then they're like, raise your hands, raise your hands. I'm like, I'm not. One more time. Exactly. And then, so this is worship, right? So like this is, and people are raising their hands and I'm like, I can't do this. And we go on and on and on and on. And I'm not kidding you. It probably was 12, 15 times that this chorus is sung over and over again. And and then I, I, I all of a sudden I'm like, why am I so angry? Like, why am I angry about this in this moment? And it's because like I I, I was care I had my doubts with me. Like yeah. I, I, I doubt God's goodness. I doubt God's grace. I doubt God's favor. I doubt God's existence all in this moment. And so to sit here and pretend like from the rising of the sun to the setting the same, I'm going to praise your name. It just didn't feel right and authentic to me, right? So this word authenticity again. Yeah. So in that moment, I thought, okay, I'm going to let go of myself here a little bit. And in spite of what I feel and what I think, I'm going to just go with it. Mm. And I remember just raising my hands. And I remember getting on my knees, singing. And then I remembered the next thing is just tears just mm-hmm. streaming down my cheeks. If you think about worship as ascribing greatness to God and our dependence upon God, and that it only takes enough faith to cry out to God, mm-hmm. that's what I felt like that moment was, was worship was the answer to my doubts and not my pursuit of all these reasons. And I think if there's one thing I would leave people with, particularly who are wrestling with faith, on the front end of following Jesus is, it actually might be a question of worship, of actually letting down your guard, because you know already that you're not gonna have sufficient answers. And it doesn't matter which way you fall in this faith thing. You're not gonna have sufficient answers for what is the meaning in the world? Right. And why is shitty things happen in the world and how do you fix it? You're not gonna have sufficient answers to that if you decide that you don't believe in anything. You're still gonna have doubts. And the same token, you're going to have doubts on this other side. Did Jesus really raise from the dead? And ultimately, I don't think you're going to find a cognitive, Mm -hmm. rational answer that is sufficient to make you certain about either side of that equation. But I do think from a faith perspective, it's that worship is the answer. It's ascribing greatness to God. When you look at the sunset, when you look at the mountains, when you're with people and you're laughing and you're at a wedding Mm -hmm. and you see love and community and joy and faith and goodness, and you ascribe greatness to God in that moment and my dependence upon God, that's worship. Mm -hmm. And it happens in all of those places, but we just, we don't often take time to even vocally and intentionally ascribe greatness to God and our dependence upon God in those moments. I think if we did that, it leads us. I think the spirit then takes us to those places yeah. to really place our faith there. Well, I, I mean, that just, I feel like we could talk about just that for another six hours. So yes. thanks for dropping that yes. um, right at the end. Yeah. Um, appreciate it. But uh, it is actually a great segue into the last question. As you know, uh, one of our values at Sojourn is this idea that having fun is a spiritual act, a way of uh, worshiping God. So what is something that you do to have fun? Wow. That, I, I, this will sound like a very pastoral answer, but (laughs) like, I really do find joy in helping people see God for the first time. I really do like that. Um, I do that for fun. Like that is really a genuine. Answer. I can attest to that. Like <laughs> I, I see your face light up when you're like, I got so many questions for you. When you know that you can just sit down and question somebody. Yeah. Like you take on a different pasture. Yeah. Or, I, 
yeah, posture. I, posture. Posture is the word I was looking yeah. for. <laughs> Different posture. Um, yeah, so I, I do find, like, I do that for fun. Like, I do think that that's joyful. Um, if, if I set, set that aside uh, for a second, I do think I'm not very good at it. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm relatively serious most of the time. I think about things a lot. But fun really is for me being with people uh, and celebrating goodness. And that can happen in, in any moment. It happens to me when I'm coaching softball sometimes. Mm-hmm. It happens to me when I'm at a concert with a couple of friends. It happens to me when uh, we're a family sitting around talking about our dreams. And so I, I, I really do think uh, what I do for fun is, is be with people, <laughs> uh, hearing their stories about what, what God's doing. That just sounds so lame uh, in terms of what you do for fun. But that is the most fun to me. Uh, I mean, I love to go to Bruins games. So I love to watch hockey. Yeah. That's a very... I'm trying to get you into soccer, but... uh, You know, know. I did watch the Women's World Cup. There you go. I did. And I, I loved every minute of it. I love the celebration. I love the fight for equality. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. Rapino, did I say her name right? Yes, you did. Great. Uh, I, she's been a great... I, I, I did enjoy watching it, and what I can say is you've, you've taken me a long way. Well, yeah, that, that. that makes my heart happy. <laughs> there you so go. I, I still haven't made it very far with hockey yet, but uh, I'll take it. I'll trust, I'll trust your opinions on that. So, Perfect. Uh, uh, well, thank you so much for sitting down with me and, and for the good conversation. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this very first episode. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed having it. Big thanks to Tim for letting me come over, drink his beer, and ask him questions. If you have any thoughts, questions, suggestions, whatever, I would love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at SojournBU and Instagram at Sojourn underscore BU or email at SojournBU at gmail.com. We will be back in two weeks with another great conversation, and I hope you'll join us. Thanks. Thanks.